Good morning. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you would take your Bibles and turn them to the text that was read earlier from the book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the background tables for you. You can get up and grab one. Um, that is okay. Feel free to do that and turn to that passage that we'll be looking at. Uh, we have been looking at the Gospel of Mark for a year and a half. And a German uh, New Testament scholar and theologian in writing around the late 1800s, early 1900s, named Martin Kaler, described Mark's passion as, or Mark's gospel, as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. So basically, I've been introducing this book for a year and a half. And now we come to the climactic scene, the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark's gospel is Peter's account. It's Peter's eyewitness testimony of who Jesus is and what he has done. But once we get to this climactic account in the crucifixion of Jesus, we come to a problem. Peter's nowhere to be found. So how do we trust this? Was it just made up? You know, it's interesting in verse 21, we meet this character, a passerby, named Siren of Cyrene. He's now become memorialized in the Stations of the Cross, and most Christians know his name. But it's very interesting because the role that he plays in the gospel is very small. He gets one verse devoted to him. And not only were we told about Simon of Cyrene, but we're also told uh, that this guy, a country bumpkin, that's what it says, he's coming from the country, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now Mark is the shortest gospel. Why would he spill ink on telling us who Simon of Cyrene, this obscure character's children are? Because these are the eyewitnesses. And they were alive when Mark wrote. And if you want to verify the story, you could go talk to them. They lived in Rome at the time. Check the end of the book of Romans. Mark is saying that this account that I am writing is absolutely verifiable. And is absolutely true. So let me pray. And God, we do pray that the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done would set us free. That we might endeavor to know nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ, through which we are crucified to the world and the world to us, through which we live into the new creation that King Jesus has established. It's in his name that I do pray. Amen. Well, Mark's story, in essence, is the story of the king, King Jesus. In fact, throughout this uh, narrative that we have, at the very climax, the phrase that keeps appearing over and over and over again is the phrase, King of the Jews. Verse 18, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 26, the sign that is above Jesus says, King of the Jews. In verse 32, they say, let the King of Israel come down from the cross. Mark is proclaiming here that Jesus is King. 
But he is not the king in any way that we would expect. So here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at the king's agony and the king's majesty. The king's agony and the king's majesty. First, the king's agony. Crucifixion was a horrific form of execution. One of the most that the world has ever seen. Roman citizens could not be crucified because it was so dehumanizing. First, the criminal was beaten. They were stripped. No person was crucified with clothes on. Don't let our art fool you. They're beaten. They're stripped. Mocked. And then they're made to carry a cross. Their hands were nailed, their feet were nailed, and it was not a quick death. Sometimes people were there for days, and so we have actually ancient accounts of friends coming and getting their other friends off of the cross. Jesus' crucifixion didn't last quite so long because he had been beaten so badly beforehand. But it did take a long time. Verse 25 tells us that it starts at the third hour, and verse 34 says that it is in the ninth hour that he expired and breathed his last. That's, by my reckoning, which my math is not that good, but by my reckoning, a six-hour process. But it's interesting. As much as the pain, the physical pain and suffering and agony of crucifixion was, the gospel writers spend very little time on that. Mark spends very little time on that detail. In fact, he kind of is very discreet and very quickly brushes by any of the physical details. He actually wants us to draw our attention to another point of suffering. He wants us to see Jesus' humiliation. Jesus is mocked by everyone in this narrative. First, in verses 16 through 20, he is mocked by the soldiers. They, they strip him, they put one of their sashes on him, drape it over him like a robe. They twist a crown of thorns and place it on his head, and they kneel before him, pledging and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They absolutely mock him, and then they spit on him. Have you ever been spit on? Have you ever spit on someone? I, I was intervening in a domestic uh, kind of issue, dispute, and, and the, at the height of it, this person said the height of their grievance was, he spit in my face. Ross Coomber is a professor at the University of Plymouth, and he actually studies spitting and the psychology of it. And he says... Spitting in someone's face is a form of deep contempt. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us, if we see spit on the street, we avoid it. We don't step on it. And so by spitting on someone, we're saying, I think that you are less than the ground. And they spit on him. But it's not just the soldiers who mock Jesus. The passers-by, they cannot help but add insult to injury. And in verse 29, it says that they deride him. 
In verse 31, the chief priests and the scribes mock him. You know, we say as kids, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But there are a whole lot of therapists out there that would beg to differ. The reality is words can be very painful, more painful. And consider what they mock him over. His deepest sense of identity and mission. Hail, King of the Jews. You said you would save Israel. You know, if somebody mocks me and they say, you know, they make fun of like how I run or um, how I play basketball or something like that, meh, it's all right. I don't care that much. But if they, if they were like making fun of how I preach, well, that would cut a little deeper. That would cut a whole lot deeper. They're cutting deep. And, and it's not just that, that the, the chief priests and the scribes and the pastors by and the soldiers, even those who we would expect, even those who we would expect to empathize with him and sympathize with him and identify with him and be with, there with him, verse 32 says, even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Which brings us to the second form of suffering that Jesus was completely isolated, totally alone. In, verse, in chapter 14, verse 50, you'll remember how the disciples all left him and fled. Except Peter. Peter follows from a distance, but then Peter ends up denying him three times, breaking down and leaving him, and now Peter is nowhere to be found. The only disciples that actually stay anywhere close to Jesus are the women. His, his female followers, in verse 40, they look on, but Mark wants to point out that they here stand at a distance. Jesus is completely isolated. He is totally alone. You know, the more and more our society grows uh, modern and technological, um, the more and more we have uh, less need in some ways, it seems, on the surface for community. And because of that, people are doing all these studies now on loneliness and isolation and its physical and physiological effects and psychological effects. There are some studies recently that show that actually isolation can cause greater health problems than obesity or smoking. Probably because you usually do those things in community. I don't know. But you are significantly more likely to die earlier if you are alone. And we probably all experience this anecdotally just in the fact that we know spouses who one dies and then the other passes away very shortly after. I mean, why is that? Is that a coincidence? Uh, Jesus is totally isolated here and even the creation itself conspires to make him feel his isolation. In verse 33, we see that there was darkness over the whole land. Have you ever been in pitch black darkness when you can't see your hand in front of your face? It's an eerie feeling. Have you ever been there for a long time? I went spelunking once uh, 
went down in a cave. I know it was a bad idea. I was like 200, 300 yards down in a cave. I was leading these high schoolers, extra bad idea, down into this cave in my freshman year of college. And I got down there and we all turned off our lights for a moment. And then uh, it freaked me out. I mean, it gave me the heebie-jeebies, right? I, I don't know a more technical term than that, sorry. But that's what I felt. There's this documentary um, that the BBC has done called Total Isolation, where they, they took six volunteers and they put them in these bunkers. And they were completely isolated and completely dark just for 48 hours. One of the volunteers was a comedian, a stand-up comedian who's very extroverted, named Alan, uh, Adam Bloom, and he did not fare too well. He said at one point he, he, he just busted out like singing to himself. And then as he's singing to kind of keep himself company and he thought sane, as he's like, he, then he just starts being flooded with tears. Uncontrollable weeping. Like the kind of weeping someone does when they get the news that a close friend has died. He, he said that it went on from there to then he started thinking that this was all some big conspiracy and he was being trapped in this bunker by some kind of sadistic government agency. Other volunteers, as well as him, started hallucinating. They saw everything from 500 oysters to tiny cars to snakes to zebras, fighter planes, mosquitoes, and even the sensation of the room taking off. I mean, if you are totally by yourself for long enough, you will make friends with a volleyball <laughs> and call it Wilson. Uh, I mean, that stuff is real. There are two cave explorers, uh, Jose Lores and Antonio um, Sinny, and they lived alone in caves for months to test the effects of isolation, loneliness, and darkness. And they were so disoriented when they got out. They were months off of what they thought it was. Their memories had like severe problems. They had a hard time like knowing one way from the other. Complete darkness. Complete isolation. And the therapy that they had to go through for recovery was severe. It's probably one reason why in the Old Testament, darkness is a form of judgment. When God sends the plagues upon the land of Egypt, that one plague that comes is the plague of darkness that says in chapter 10, verse 21, could be felt. Got down to your bones. The prophets used to talk about this great day of the Lord. It was a day of salvation and judgment. A day when everyone would have to stand before the throne room, uh, before the throne of God, and all their thoughts and all the intentions of their hearts and every word that they've ever said and everything that they've ever done would be known and we would put out in the open. And that day, Amos says, will be like this. And that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning, like mourning for an only son. 
Amos is saying that on the great day of the Lord, the sun will hide its face. And on that day, in the middle of the Passover festival, the sun hid its face. And the sun, S-O-N, cried out in agony, verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus was totally alone. Completely isolated. Even isolated from the Father. You know, one of the most devastating judgments that God levels upon humanity is that he lets us have what we want. And there in the garden when we shook our fist at God and we decided to go our own way and we said, I don't want God and I don't want a God in my life to rule my life and run my life, God said, okay. And we were left alone in the dark. Because God is the source of all life and all light. And therefore sin cuts us off and the wages of sin are death and walking in the darkness. God leaves us totally alone. Jesus here is totally alone, but not completely alone. In verse 34, we read that Jesus cries out in a loud voice. You know, Jesus isn't the only person in the Gospel of Mark to cry out in a loud voice. Let me read the other times. Chapter 1, verse 26, And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Chapter 5, verse 7, And crying out with a loud voice, the demoniac said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. In Mark, those who cry out in a loud voice, and only those who cry out in a loud voice, are those who are the demon-possessed under satanic assault. And what does Satan assault us with? God isn't with you. God isn't for you. God doesn't love you. And he accuses the brethren. And that day, he accused our elder brother. You see, when Jesus cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark would have us draw the conclusion that Jesus is under satanic assault. And those of you who have been with us from the beginning know that the demons have been very active throughout the Gospel of Mark. And wouldn't it be odd if they weren't to be found here? And yet they are right at the heart of the crucifixion. Because God gives us our own way. And our own way was not to, choose, to simply reject God, but to choose Satan. And God says, okay. 
And Jesus, he fully identifies with us and the weight of our sin. This is the weight and the consequence of sin. This is the agony of Calvary. And it is awful and it is ugly. You know, there's... There's been a lot of emotions after this last week and the Supreme Court nomination hearing. Emotions on all sides. The weight that I felt this whole week was, oh God, have mercy on me for my sin. Because it was right there in my face. Awful and ugly. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. And the cross of Christ, Jesus takes on the shame and the humiliation and the isolation to the utmost that our sin deserves. This is the agony of Calvary, and it is ugly. But for those with eyes to see, there is beauty here. There is beauty here, which brings us to the majesty. Again, Mark wants to bring out that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And we see it over and over again in this text. Verse 18 the soldiers call him the king. Hey, they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 26, there's a sign over his head that says, King of the Jews. And in verse 20, uh, 32, the chief uh, priests and the scribes, they say, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross. Now, I realize that in every one of their voices, every one of their voices, they are saying this in mockery. But Mark is a literary masterpiece. And he has crafted this beautiful literary story. And he uses all these kinds of literary devices to bring out his point and put them in sharp focus. And one of the literary devices that he uses most effectively here is that of irony. You know irony, right? Right? If you don't know what irony is, then, you know, talk to your grandkids or your kids uh, and, uh, and, you know, some of the hipsters among us. They will tell us what irony is. But irony is when you say one thing, but it means something else. Or irony is when a character in a literary piece says something and they don't know the full weight of what they're saying. And here we see that Mark wants to draw out the paradoxical and counterintuitive nature of Jesus' kingdom through the use of irony. Irony number one. The king, this king who Mark is proclaiming, this king who, who can't save himself actually saves others. In verses 31 and 32, the chief priests and the scribes mock Jesus saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. You see, what the chief priests and the, uh, and the scribes are saying here is, Look, kings, real kings, Powerful kings save their subjects. They save their citizens. And so this guy, he can't even save himself. How is he going to save his subjects and how he's going to save his, his citizens? And then they say, look, come down. If you come down, then we would believe that you are powerful enough to save. 
But here's the irony. Jesus could have come down. Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels. That is 60,000 angels. Now, when you think of an angel, you think of precious moments. There's not one angel in the Bible that looks like precious moments because every time someone is confronted with one angel, they fall down in fear, terrified. I mean, when did you see a precious moments picture and say, Oh, get thou away from me? Never. Because that's not what angels look like. And Jesus is saying that he could call down 60,000 angels, one of which would have you shaking in your boots. He could have come down. And then they think, well, then we would believe. But here's the problem with that. Believe in the Christian sense is to believe that the Son of God took on the full weight of your sin on the cross. And so if he was to come down the cross, then they could never actually believe in the Christian sense. See, because back in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, uh, Jesus said that, that his mission, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment that is used to redeem a slave. To buy a slave out of slavery so that they might enter into freedom. And Jesus says that my life, my life, I am laying it down. I am giving it up. It is a payment to set many free. And so it is precisely because he will save others that he cannot save himself. In World War II, there was this battle in northern Italy, Soma Colonia. And there, uh, artillery general named John Robert Fox was leading his, uh, leading his, his, uh, his group, his infantrymen. And as they were, as they were uh, there in Soma Colonia, their position was compromised and the Germans were gaining on them. And John Robert Fox realized at that point that his men were about to die if he didn't give the command to fire immediately. And so he gave the command. But here was the problem. His position had already been compromised and he was in the direct line of fire. He saved others. He could not save himself. Jesus saved others. He saved you and me. And he could not save himself. You see, the, the chief priests and the scribes, they say, they say, if you would get down from the cross, then we could see and we could believe. But what they don't understand is that actually to see, you have to believe like the centurion believes, who stands face to face with Jesus in his agony and in his death and when he breathes his last and says, truly this is the Son of God because he saw. Some of you here today and you, you're saying, God, are you there? And if you're there, do you love me? 
And are you for me? And if you would just do this or just do that, then I could trust you. Then I could believe in you. Then I could follow you with all my heart. Then I could know that you're for me and that you're real and that you're true. Or, God, if you do this, then I will continue to. And if you don't, I don't know what's going to happen to my faith. Do you want to know that God loves you? Do you want to know that he's for you? Stop making demands and ultimatums. But follow him to the foot of the cross. And there he will see. There you will see. And there he will show you. His saving power and his love. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. The king who can't save himself saves others. Second irony The king who feels the absence of God most acutely reveals God's presence most definitively. In verse 34, Jesus cries out in darkness, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he breathes his last. I mean, you expect the one who who trusts God that God would come then and rescue him, but he doesn't rescue him, he dies. See, the end of the psalm, you think, in Psalm 22, begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says he trusts in God, let God save him. Well, he trusts in God, but God doesn't seem to save him. It seems that God is absent, and there is darkness, and then it's the end. And it's right at that moment that verse 38 tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn or ripped in two from top to bottom. The curtain was not a flimsy sheet. The curtain was a thick wall that stood between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. It stood between where the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God was said to dwell, and the rest of the temple and the rest of the world. And only one person could go into the Holy of Holies, and that was the most holy man the high priest, and he could only go on the most holy day of the year, Yom Kippur, and he could only enter after this series of elaborate sacrificial rituals and cleansing acts. And then he could go in, and even then, he had to go in with like bells and a rope in case he wasn't clean enough and he was struck dead so they could drag him out. What the curtain said very loudly, very clearly, is that it is impossible for sinful people to come into the presence of God. And that curtain, at the moment of Jesus' death, is ripped in two. From top to bottom, just so we know whose agency it was. This was not a human act. Now commentators, just about all commentators, it's very usual for commentators to see this and pastors and to say, uh, draw the conclusion, and now we can approach God. 
But I respectfully want to say that I think that misses the dynamic of Mark and the whole dynamic of Christianity, even though I understand why they say that. Because this isn't the first time that the heavens are ripped open, that something is ripped open in Mark. Remember back in chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism when we see that the heavens are ripped open? And then what happens after that? Is there a ladder that we approach God on? No. The Spirit invades the universe. Here, again, we have the barrier between earth and heaven being ripped open. Why? So that we now have a path and a choice to go seek God? No. So that the presence of God and His glory, that which was hidden, can now radiate through this world. So now God can invade this cosmos which have been claimed by sin and death and Satan, and He can rescue us out of it. That's the dynamic of Mark, and that's the dynamic of Christianity. This is about God saving us. And so, some of you who are here are going through an incredibly dark season, and God feels absent, and He feels absent in a way that He never has before. What the cross of Jesus Christ tells us is that it is precisely in the darkest moments of life. That it's precisely when we can't see. That it's precisely when God feels absent that he reveals his presence most clearly and most truly and his love that that's actually when he is with us the most and for us the most and loves us the most. But it takes eyes to see. It's precisely why it is in this dark hour that the centurion stood facing Jesus and saw the way that he breathed his last and said, truly this man is the Son of God. Because it's there in the darkness and in the death and in the God-forsakenness that God made himself known to the centurion. Maybe in your dark hour, God wants to reveal himself in a way that you have never known before in his deep, deep love for you. The king who feels God's absence most acutely reveals God's presence most definitively, especially to this centurion, which brings me to the last irony. And that is that the king who is utterly defeated is ultimately triumphant. Crucifixion was a form of political oppression against Rome's enemies. And it was used for insurrectionists and those who thought that they were above Caesar. It was actually an ironic form of punishment because they were basically saying, you think you're so big, you think you're so high and mighty, you think you're above Caesar, we'll show you what high and mighty is, we'll make you high and mighty, we'll put you up above Caesar. And they did. 
We'll put someone to your right and we'll put them to your left, just like in a throne room, and we'll put a sign above you. And it was Rome's way of exhorting their power over political adversaries and saying, if you try to take on Rome, you will lose. And in all appearances on that day, Jesus lost. He lost to the religious leaders. He lost to the Roman government and their oppression. He even lost to Satan. As while he's under demonic assault, he breathes his last. By all appearances, it looks like Jesus has lost, and yet it's in the midst of his weakness that Jesus shows us what true strength looks like. It's in the midst of defeat that Jesus is victorious over sin and Satan, and it's on the cross that he reigns triumphant. Because it's here where he defeats Satan. It's here where he shows us that true power is exercised in restraint. It's here where Jesus wins the victory. By wooing and winning the centurion's heart. And that's why this confession of the centurion is so important. Truly this is the son of God. And this is the second person in Mark's narrative to confess that. The first is Peter. Remember back in chapter 8, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter says, right, I mean, Jesus says to Peter, right you are, Peter. Peter gets it. He's made the confession. And then Jesus tells them what that means. And the Christ must go and he must suffer and he must be crucified. And in three days he will rise again. And Peter's like, all right, I already scored some the theological points, and I know this one. It's a trick question. No way, Jesus. May it never be. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Because at that point, when Peter was confessing Jesus to be the king, to be the Christ, he still has an understanding of kings that means that kings conquer. They're not conquered. Kings win. They don't lose. Kings... Crucify. They aren't crucified. And he has yet to understand what the true king looks like and what the true king's beauty comes in. But the centurion, he does understand. And he's the most unlikely person to make this confession because do you know who was called son of God in the ancient Roman world? Every Roman coin had a, it had an inscription on it an image of Tiberius Caesar, and it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. You see, any Roman, loyal Roman citizen, any centurion, if they were going to confess that someone was the son of God, it was going to be Caesar and Caesar alone. And this centurion, he knew that Caesar was the son of God because Caesar crushed his enemies. Because Caesar was victorious. Because Caesar always ruled and always reigned. He was always strong. He was always victorious. And no one could match him. And yet here, he sees a vision and strength and power which he has never known before. Here as he looks at Jesus breathe his last and cry out in God forsakenness. Here he says, no, this is truly the Son of God. This is what real power looks like. This is what true strength looks like. This is what ultimate victory looks like.
So the question for us is do we still have Peter's confession of what it looks like to be the king, for Jesus to be the king? Or have we had our vision of Jesus' kingship transformed like the centurion by the cross? Do you have Peter's understanding of Jesus in his kingdom or like the centurion, has your vision of power, of victory, and of Jesus' reign been transformed by the cross? Jesus calls his disciples to take up the cross. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. All the time we talk about bearing our crosses and usually we mean that we are dealing with like a cold or, um, uh, uh, you know, a kind of annoying in-law or something like that. Maybe something a little, a little bigger than that. But it, in the ancient world, you would never have talked about the cross that way. To carry your cross meant and always meant that you were going out in shame to death. outside the city to the, with the marginalized. And Jesus says, come. Come with me. A lot of people are anxious today. A lot of Christians are anxious today because the reality is, is that Christianity is losing its cultural power. And a lot of people are really anxious about that. A lot of Christians are really, really anxious about that. And we're grabbing on and we're holding tight. And we want to, to have as much power that we can retain as possible. And we're just, we're like really scared. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, and not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And your Savior calls you to take up your cross and follow him outside the city gates into the place of marginalization and powerlessness because that's where the victory comes. And so will you believe in the God who raises the dead? Will you believe that God exercises his strength and weakness? Take courage, dear flock, of your crucified Savior. For it is in the cross that God's victory and his power and his presence and his love are made known to us and to the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.